0: Gonville and Caius College, Cambridge, late autumn 2019. 40 years after it welcomed women through its doors, we're meeting Kean's past and present to talk about some of the most important issues facing women today.
1: I've always wondered why the Econ Library, you don't have a really nice Econ Library.
2: Just, ah, just so, well, that depends on what your views are on architecture. My husband really loves that building, <laughs> the Austin Robinson building in the Marshall Library. It's the worst. (laughs) They stand out architecturally, don't they?
0: (laughs) Twenty years separate Samantha Onyekwere and Victoria Bateman's time at the college, both studying economics.
1: So when I arrived in 2017, things were not so different from how they are now. We were still in the Brexit debacle. We just had the general election over the summer and Theresa May had lost her majority. So no one really knew what was going to happen.
2: That's interesting because when I came here as an undergraduate, so 20 years ago or so now, Things were looking more optimistic, at least on the face of it. So unemployment had come down, inflation had come down. There was a new Labour government that had just come to power in 1997. There were big changes on the economic policy front. This is the fellows part of the library which is always really quiet and you've got some really historic books in here including some I imagine that are worth quite a lot of money to antiquarian book collectors. I've only been in here once. Matriculation. It is where we do matriculation ceremonies, you're right, and it's where we have all the big fellows meetings as well, debate the big issues of the day. (laughs) So pretty. I forgot
1: what it was actually like. I I do not go to the library very frequently. (laughs) I sometimes go to get a nice picture for my Instagram story.
0: (laughs) After their visit to the college library, they sat down together to find out more about each other and their interests in economics. Victoria started with a few questions for Samantha about her take on the current economic and political climate
2: you feeling quite pessimistic in general? do you think there is this pessimism that's gripping as in Britain and in the wider world? well
1: definitely as in for instance like you've spoken before about um, when you were a student, how things were there contrast to um, the economy that I've been brought up in like the financial crisis is one of my earlier memories, mm-hmm. and since then I guess you've just been growing up in like a very anemic economy. Yes. We don't really have any experience of the, like, really the good times in the economy, <laughs> yeah. I guess. So I hope one day I will. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, I think I think for people my age, like, the economy has Let shaped their worldview
2: mm.
1: in some ways and not positively.
2: Mm, that's interesting, because when I came here as an undergraduate, so 20 years ago or so now, things were looking more optimistic, at least on the face of it. So unemployment had come down from the highs that it was in the 80s and early 90s. Inflation had come down. There was a new Labour government that had just come to power in 1997, promising new investment in public services. There were big changes on the economic policy front. So with regard to monetary policy, the Bank of England had just been made independent. And so the idea was that would insulate it from political pressure. In terms of fiscal policy, Gordon Brown, brought his prudence and his fiscal rules, but that made some way for public investment. Um, so I think there was there was a degree of optimism for the future, and you're right that actually since then, Optimism does seem to have turned to pessimism. We are in quite different economic times, but I think at the same time you can see some of the seeds of where we are right now back then. So, whilst on the face of it in the late 90s things were improving, underneath that you still had the regional inequality. For example, you had an economy that was becoming increasingly based on consumer spending and the the, the consumer debt that that comes with that that didn't provide stable foundations for the future.
1: Most people have grown up in homes that their parents have owned but don't think it's ever going to be likely that they're going to own their own home. Also with um, Brexit, I think most young people have like a more global worldview have always been as part of the european union like when i was born we were in the european union so it's kind of like for us it's a very weird experience to like be forced into this more insular
2: yeah
1: setting and i think it goes against probably most values that most young people have and i don't know what the world's going to look like in the future which
2: and that's why perhaps you're going you're you're thinking of going into politics do you think um
1: yes i definitely for instance just looking at the recent like political happenings. so if we look at the 2017 general election and then the country has become more polarized than ever along generational lines mm. which is quite um different to what we've seen in the past where it's been more like class-based mm. as such so i think as um younger people um start going into the workforce we're gonna start seeing some big changes in the political sphere specifically as we become like a more what's the word a larger proportion of the electorate
2: so there's some hope yeah but
1: (laughs) i'm not i can't say i'm not too optimistic (laughs) like i don't know as in i think it's it's hard to be optimistic
2: I grew up in a working class family in Oldham. My dad left school at 15 and my mum at 16 so I was the first to go to university. I had a state school education right through. Education was very much something that my father saw as the way that I could escape the difficult circumstances that I sometimes had as a child to have perhaps a more comfortable life. It requires quite a long-term approach because of course when you're a young person and you're in quite difficult circumstances the easy thing to do is actually to try and fit in which sometimes means not doing well at school and you know sex drugs rock and roll <laughs> type thing but I tried to keep my eye on the ball focus on the long term so did work hard Got good GCSEs, and and that was really a push then to stay on and do A levels. There was a question as to whether my family could afford for me to stay on and do A levels, so that was a bit of a shaky time. But actually, we managed it, and I, and I did do A levels, and um, applied to Cambridge. And when I applied to Cambridge, it was one of those things that people kind of laughed at me for doing, you know, the kind of thing that, that seemed unachievable. I'd grown up in a sense being laughed at, and I always had the view that you don't let what other people think stand in your way, and you don't have to conform, you have to be guided by your own conscience, by your own dreams. I think the difficulty is that there was a sense in which I never felt I quite fitted in where I grew up, and then I got to Cambridge, and for a while I didn't feel I fitted in here either. (laughs) So, uh, you know. The, the beautiful buildings, the traditions, the history and so on, just not something that I grew up with. But what you learn to do is see beyond that and see, you know, it's not like Cambridge can just knock down all of those buildings and forget all of those traditions, that those things are actually really just superficial. And what matters is the people coming to Cambridge literally changed my life. But I came to Cambridge with a view that I wanted to understand the economy so that I could try and make sure that other people didn't have to have the same bad experiences that i had growing up so with a view that trying to better understand prosperity poverty and inequality and so on that we can make sure everybody has opportunities in in life so so what are your experiences of of cambridge samantha was it a bit of a culture shock for you as well i actually feel like when i came like i felt quite comfortable
1: very quickly like Everyone that I met straight away was really friendly. I loved everyone that I lived with and everyone on our course. Like, we have a good year group, right? Yeah, I remember being worried beforehand because you hear, oh, Cambridge, it's going to be, like, everyone's going to be really posh and... lots of like myths, a- aren't there, about Cambridge, yeah. And I was thinking, yeah. oh, am I going to fit in? But, like, yeah, because yeah, I always wanted to go somewhere, like, really meaningful. Lots of universities across the country are all quite similar and I wanted to go somewhere that would have the best opportunities where you'd meet the most interesting people. I always knew I'd want to go to either like Cambridge or like an Ivy League university, something like that.
2: It's quite Um, interdisciplinary, isn't it? Because of the college system, actually every day you're meeting people from different subjects so you get that dynamic exchange of ideas and so on. Whereas I think in a lot of places you're very much surrounded by people in your own subject and it it can become quite insular.
1: Yeah, I agree 100%. Like the college system, it creates a community that you don't get elsewhere. Mm -hmm. Without the college system, then we wouldn't have, be able to make those ties as easily. Mm -hmm. Economics is usually not something that people study until Mm A-level. So I think... With me, probably with most people, you don't really know what economics is until you study it. So it's kind of just something that you add on, like, oh, that looks interesting, and then yeah. as you learn more about it, it becomes your favourite.
2: You're right, actually. That what is economics? You know, it, people people in a sense understand. The economy, and of course we're all living and breathing the economy every day, and every single decision we make, no matter how intimate, feeds in to affect that economy. You know, how many children we have, whether we work part-time or long-term, whether we go to university or not, all of these decisions affect the economy, and yet the economy seems something mythical and somehow separate, something that is going on in the world of high finance or in stock markets or because I do remember why
1: I chose it, it was because um, I'd done like a citizenship studies course during secondary school and there was like a part of the course that we learned about a financial crisis and I was like oh okay this is economics and that's interesting I just feel like it brought many subjects into it which is something that I've always liked compared to something like physics or something like that mm. where you really are in like a, a vacuum of sense like If you're doing maths, it doesn't really matter what's going on in the rest of the world.
2: Yeah, yeah. It's a magpie subject, isn't it, economics? It does bring together society, so sociology, a bit of anthropology, ethnography as well, philosophy. You know, you've got the question of the individual versus society and potential conflicts or complementarities between them, politics, history, a bit of maths as well in terms of whether we can work out general economic laws to try and understand the world around us. I guess it makes it seem difficult, but also all the more exciting to be able to join the dots between so many different aspects of life, so many different subjects, do you think? For me
1: personally, um, as I've gone through the degree, I've become more interested in the more um, greater context Mm. of economics and the political aspects Mm. of what's going on outside of just the models that we're creating and learning in like macro or something.
2: Do you find that those models that you're learning in economic theory, do you find that they fit well with the world around you or that? there is a mismatch between economic theory and the reality of the world out there. For the
1: most case, I would say that they don't match very well, at least up to the level that we've learnt. As in, you have, like, two models to look at the same issue and then you can change assumptions and then you get completely opposite results. So then I guess it's trying to decide when you want to make it in the real world, like, where... the real world actually lies between
2: between those two extreme (laughs) sets of assumptions so
1: yeah yeah. obviously for me it was you who I first met and who first taught me and was my director of studies throughout the degree and who was the influence for you
2: I was taught by Ian McPherson who was by then a very well retired economic historian, but still teaching. And he had this amazingly historic room in the old court straddling two of the beautiful courtyards with windows looking out in each direction. So he seemed to be kind of up on a pedestal looking over life in college. And he was a Scot. I came from the north. So there was a a bit of um, similarity there. Before I came here, I spent my summer reading a lot of History of Economic Thought. And actually, I thought when I came to Cambridge that an economics degree would involve reading Smith and Marx and Ricardo and so on. And actually, no, it doesn't. It involves reading textbooks with mathematical, sometimes quite dry, models of the economy. So actually, I used my essays with Dr. McPherson which involved thinking about the history of the economy, I used them as an opportunity to bring in some of that history of economic thought. And um, he would, in every supervision, whatever we were talking about, he would turn to me and he would say, so, Victoria, what would Karl Marx think of this question? So I think he tried to develop my interests in some of those big economic questions that economists have been thinking about for, for centuries, but in a sense can can be lost. The funny thing is, when I went to Oxford to do economic history, my supervisor there said to me, quite honestly, Victoria, you will never be taken seriously as an economic historian unless you do more economics. So after doing my master's in economic history, I then switched to the economics faculty in Oxford, where I did master's papers in economics. Before then, I did a PhD, a in the economics faculty there on an economic history subject, the same subject I would do in a history department, but the feeling was because it was rubber-stamped economics that that somehow made me more valuable, which I think says a lot about how economists see themselves as the king of the social scientists, which I think is a very bad, a very unfortunate situation to be in, but it was the strategic game, in a sense, that I was asked to, to, to play. So when I was um, first here as an undergraduate, women were really few and far between. I don't know in terms of your experiences, Samantha, today, 20 years on, do you feel, as a woman, do you feel that you stand out in economics? Or do you feel that there's much greater gender equality in the subject than perhaps there was in my day? It's still, obviously,
1: majority men by far. But... um... I don't feel like I stand out as a woman. There's a lot of us, um, especially in keys, and it can vary a lot between colleges, yeah. which I've never really known why. Because there are some colleges that have like 12 economists a year, and they're always all guys. I'm like,
2: that's kind of uh-huh. odd. You <laughs> see, they're, they're, I'm director of studies. We have 50-50. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: yeah, I always felt from the beginning like if that's a path that I want to go down as an academic in economics, and that's um, that would be um an opportunity to for me. Yeah. I remember someone even commenting cuz um, my further mass class was majority girls.
2: Oh, which that's very is unusual.
1: Not in do. line of the national trend.
2: So if we think about the wider world, who who has most inspired you? Who do you see as your mentor? My personal
1: role model, I'd have to choose Christine Lagarde. Wow. Cuz there's like so many things that I want to do and I Part of my life has been, like, agonising over what career can I choose? Yeah. And she's just done everything. And there's nothing that she hasn't done that isn't impressive. She's... So
2: tell us what she's done. She's She's got an impressive woman, isn't yeah. she? Yeah,
1: so she started off as a partner in a law firm, Baker McKenzie. And, um, well, she didn't start off as a partner. But she became yes. a partner and she became head of um, Baker McKenzie in um, Europe, I think. And then... Um, She um, became a minister in the French government. Then she became finance minister, so the Chancellor of the Exchequer equivalent. Mm -hmm. And um, and she became head of the IMF. And now she's the president of the ECB. And that mirrors a lot of the things that I want to do in my life. Mm -hmm. Well, not necessarily a law firm, but going into the corporate world, going into politics and being an IGO. And then Central Bank. That's what's like... People often think, oh... Which way am I going to go? Am I going to sell my soul or am yeah. I going to like yeah. go work for um, an IGO development or development yeah. bank or something like that? And I just think like, seeing her just makes you realize like you can, you
2: can do both, you can do everything if you want. Um, what about you? So, I'm, I, it's probably going to be really controversial what I'm going to say, but I was born in 1979, the year Margaret Thatcher came to power. Now, Margaret Thatcher was a very divisive figure in the community where I grew up. In old um, de some saw that as a product of Thatcher's policies. Other people um, saw Thatcher as selling opportunities and and actually my my dad who'd had a difficult time in the boom and bust of the 80s and early 90s was I think in some ways inspired by Thatcher actually to start up his own business i mean actually it it didn 't go very well as the economy dived, but nevertheless, I think some saw her as an inspiration in terms of you know times were difficult, and she gave them the feeling that no matter where you came from that you could achieve anything that you could start your own business that you could progress your life and for some people that worked out but for a lot of people it didn't and you know my dad's business and and this was at a time when I was growing up as a child had a really really difficult time in the deep recession in the early 1990s. He was in the construction industry. And so what happened was um, the bigger businesses in construction couldn't pay the smaller businesses like my dad's. And so that created a lot of debt. And I saw the way in which a small business person like him would be between the big giant businesses who couldn't afford to pay but then also the people that he was employing that he couldn't afford to pay their wages as a result and there were times when people would turn up at our door with um, baseball bats and you know it was really quite extreme. So Thatcher was a very divisive figure but at the same time I do think growing up as a girl and her Being in the the most powerful position in this country, our first female prime minister, did make me feel that you can achieve anything. And interestingly, of course, she was from a working class background. Her parents were green grocers and she she went from there to study at Oxford. So I think there were some similarities in terms of our backgrounds as well. So whilst I, I don't necessarily agree with her, politics or her policy through and through it did make me feel that as a woman that you could aspire and achieve so that's my controversial choice but actually once I got to Cambridge I soon found out about this shadowy figure that hangs over the Cambridge economics faculty a very very big female figure Joan Robinson so she was one of the very few female economists here in Cambridge in the early to to mid 20th century. And she was around at the time of people like John Maynard Keynes and Sraffa, Nikki Caldor, all of the great Of male economists associated with Cambridge and she very much challenged I think a lot of their thinking, she got quite interested in Marxist economics she got very interested in the economies of India and China and travelled a bit with that and she seemed a very strong and powerful figure and so in a sense she became my my influence once I got to Cambridge, some might say a more positive influence than than Margaret Thatcher, I don't know
1: So I guess in terms of economics, like, for instance, in research, you will often see in papers that, like, you come to all these conclusions and then, but the data was only using men. And Mm -hmm. you see that a lot even just during your degree when you're reading um, research for your essay or such. I think there is, right now, maybe a small revolution of such going on in the research, like an active encouragement to... um, improve the data that's used and like consider other aspects of the economy like home life and family life when you're doing research and then what i was saying about it getting worse was based on student numbers i remember like reading on the bbc that shows that um unlike computer science or maths and other stem subjects which are seeing female participation gradually increasing economics In the UK, is actually seeing falling numbers. Like to me, that was quite surprising because I guess I just had the view that all subjects were becoming more balanced. Yeah, yeah,
2: that that women were making progress in all areas. It is interesting that so we there are around three times as many young men studying economics in the UK as there are young women, and as as you say, that has uh, stagnated and, if anything, uh, dipped compared with where we were. 10 years ago or so. It's interesting you talk about how a lot of the data that we use as economists is very much based on men's lives, so men's experiences in the labour market. If we're looking at inequality and social mobility we look at men and how they have progressed in life compared with their fathers Um, because often that's what we have easiest data on you know particularly if you're looking across time women's occupations were not always recorded on things like marriage certificates or birth certificates and things like that in the way that men and fathers were and so on so I think that definitely is an issue and then you also talked about how the family um, community society is something that economists are having to better grapple with and try and integrate into their models and I think here it's interesting to reflect on when modern economics was born and actually it was born in the late 19th century and that was a time when Women had actually moved backwards in terms of their involvement in the formal economy. So we'd had the Industrial Revolution. And what's really interesting is during that Industrial Revolution, which was, of course, the beginning of sustained modern growth in Britain, but during that Industrial Revolution women's involvement in the labour market fell rather than rose. The proportion of women working fell from about 65% to 45%, according to figures from my colleagues. And so economics then starts to form. At a time when we increasingly see men's role as being to earn money in the labour market and women are increasingly feeling pushed into the home, into those reproductive and caring responsibilities, unpaid responsibilities. So then we have this wall that goes up in a sense between what we see as economics, which is basically what men are doing out there, paid work in the market or in politics, versus what women are doing. And and we start to see that more social, reproductive, unpaid, caring side of things as somehow quite separate. So I think ever since really, ever since modern economics was born in the um, late 19th century, we've had quite um, a rigid way of thinking about what is the economy and If if we think about economist models, if we think about people in those models, what we call labour, if we think about a production function, output in the economy is a function of machines and labour and Technology as well, but we see their labour people as an input into the production process, as if we all just appear from nowhere, you know, at working age, ready to engage and are able to engage and produce in this in this economy. When, of course, what we know is that people labour often, from a woman's point of view, very much. and output themselves of many, many years of reproductive and caring labour. And so there is this mismatch, in a sense, between the real world of economic activity, which involves a lot of that reproductive and caring labour, and what economists take from that real world and model. And I think until we have, as economists, a, a more holistic model of the economy, then it's not surprising that we have things like the crisis of care that we have right now in the economy for the last 50 years or so it's been very much a, a policy to try and encourage women into the world of work but neglecting the fact that they were already doing work it was just unpaid work within the home and and that as you pull women into the labor market that leaves gaps in terms of care that need to be filled and because economists have for a long time neglected that it's not surprising therefore that that gap in care that is left has gone unaddressed and we're in the kind of situation that we have right now where people on the ground are struggling to to juggle child care elderly care you know looking after elderly parents as well as paid work at a time when wages are stagnating when housing costs are, are increasing The academic community that I have here in college is very special and actually very different to what I have in economics because economics does have quite a hostile environment towards female academics. And actually, we have had our Me Too moment back in the summer of 2017. In fact, it was an undergraduate who'd done her dissertation at an American university on there's an online forum in economics called Economic Job Market Rumours. And what she did was to study the types of language used on that online forum in regard to female economists versus male economists. And so she found by scraping that that forum that when people in economics are talking about female economists, they'll use words like hot and attractive and breasts. When they're talking about male economists, they'll use words like intelligent and books. So there is this um, quite apparent um, problem in economics and that really spurred a whole series of papers and revelations in economics. I mean, we have the horror that is in the... U.S. recruitment of academic economists, it was very common to be interviewed in a hotel bedroom where you are sat on a bed with academics on chairs in front of you being interviewed for your, for your post. And this happened at the American Economic Association annual meeting. This was part of the, of the normal thing. And actually, one of my former Cambridge students, she was at St. John's, not a she she got a scholarship to go to do graduate studies in the US and now is an early career researcher in the US and she has led the fight to change that way in which interviews take place in the in the US job market. Anna Stansbury, she's called a a rising star in economics over in in the US. So there is this quite hostile environment, I think, quite toxic environment towards women in in the economic sphere. But the great thing about being part of a college like Keyes is you are not surrounded by other economists, you are surrounded by people in so many different subjects. So I have colleagues here that are doing geography or that are doing uh, research in science that hopes to resolve cancer so from across so many disciplines and actually I find that they are extremely open-minded and welcoming and perhaps have a much better idea about what's happening in the economy (laughs) than some of my economics colleagues do. And so it's really interesting to share ideas in economics with these people from different subjects, and they provide a really great uh, support network. And of course, I can draw on the research and the work that they're doing and integrate it into my thinking about the economy. So I think there is something really, really special about the intellectual community here. And I think perhaps from the outside, it might look quite a traditional group of academics but actually behind the the beards and the faces and everything is a really forward-thinking quite open-minded community of course there can be exceptions but I think we're 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 a much more open-minded community than than perhaps the image of us might be And, and I really do treasure that and I really do feel it's an honor actually to be to be a part of that of that community and I think that's what keeps me going actually through the difficulties that you can face as a woman in economics I think that having that support network of the college really does in a sense give you the support and the confidence to 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 keep on going so five years ago I began an initiative women in economics day an annual day which is um, something we run for young women aged between 16 and 18 to come to Cambridge and hear from um, women in economics about the opportunities in the subject and the kind of gaps we need to fill. And I do think actually it's had a, it's had a positive effect in terms of boosting the number of female applicants that we've had and, and so on. So, Samantha, you are one of our brilliant young women in economics, doing amazingly well in your exams, first-class results across the board and so on. So do you see yourself as someone who could bring about change, as someone who can fly the flag for women in economics and make economics a a subject that can deliver a better understanding of the world?
1: Yes. Um, I guess there's, like, two aspects to it from the... um... I don't, want to, I don't want to say the establishment, that's not what I mean. But like the established academics that we already have here, challenging them and making sure that they look at the wider context too. Yep. But then there's also um, the incoming future students. Yes. And I try to get involved in that too by helping out at the Women in Economics days.
2: Two years on the run you've spoken at our Women in Economics day.
1: As in fast forward 20 years, I definitely want to have done something meaningful in terms of not necessarily be the prime minister or something, mm-hmm. but, like, I guess what's important to me is not just going through, through life... The standard and,
2: channels of yes. job in finance.
1: Yeah, I want to make sure that I do um, try to leave my own footprint and make an impact whether that's through politics or economics, no. I can't be sure, maybe both, I don't know.
2: Yeah, and it's interesting, we haven't yet had a female Chancellor of the Exchequer, have no, we? Not. So there is, a, there is a gap to fill.
0: Thank you to Samantha Onyakwere and Victoria Bateman. In the next episode of For the Love of Learning, we'll meet two Keyans putting women centre stage, Key's Women in the Arts. Last year, the college held a garden party part of their celebrations of 40 years of women at Keys, And some of the women who attended shared their memories of their time at the college with us. For me, it was all about the academic side of it. I wanted to study in the best place I possibly could. And then coming into such a beautiful space that felt so welcoming, coming from a northern state school, I wasn't expecting it to be quite as inclusive as it is. I'm Francesca Hunt. I'm studying English at Gumball and Keys, And I'm the women and non-binary officer on the GCSU. Something I always think about the anniversary of Women at Keys is that it's fantastic to have had 40 years and certainly within the student body it feels like we've always been here and there's no issue. Hopefully we'll carry on the success.